Good morning, everybody, and welcome to One Story. Welcome to One Story. All right, um, we're going to start by looking at Genesis 1-1. It's going to be a long series. <laughs> now, as a way of launching out into this One Story adventure together, I want us to uh, read Genesis 1-1, kind of one phrase at a time, and I'd like us to stand up and read this together, but I want to read it one phrase at a time, and I'd like you to read after me, if you don't mind. And then after, we'll just think about the significance of this one single verse. So here we go. After me. In the beginning, In the beginning. God, created God created the heavens and the earth. The and the earth. One more time. In the beginning, In the beginning. God, created God created the heavens and the earth. All right, have a seat. Thank you. That sentence remains to this day perhaps the single most controversial and important sentence that has ever been written. Uh, now, to understand why, I want us to try to, un uh, to imagine what life was like. This is a little weird, isn't it? Um, uh, what life was like before those words were actually written. Uh, a guy, by the, an author by the name of Thomas Cahill wrote a book, The Gift of the Jews, and he writes that our civilization has been so shaped by the Old Testament scriptures that it's almost impossible to conceive how much those words changed the world. So imagine for a moment, you'd never heard that there was a, a personal God who created all things, who promises life in heaven. You'd never heard that before. Now, we need to know the significance of this very first verse, because in the ancient Near East, where these words were written, there were a number of myths about how creation took place, like in Mesopotamia, which is also known as the cradle of civilization. You've probably heard that. Uh, you might even remember from high school or college a, a, a writing by the name of the Epic of Gilgamesh. That was one of those creation myths. And most of these myths had some basic features in common uh, that created this dominant worldview in that day. These myths shared a belief that the universe was filled with many, many gods, and all of these gods were limited in power and morally quite fallible. They were petty and jealous with each other. And the result was that pe people lived in fear. Uh, there was incredible superstition. They worshipped ob objects like the sun and the moon. They believed like, uh, that heavenly bodies, like stars, actually directed the lives and affairs of human beings. Can you imagine people actually believing something like that? And they engaged in practices like human sacrifice to try to manipulate the God's behavior. It was just part of the world at that time. Now, this dominant worldview, these myths, also had a very, very low view of human nature. Um, humans were, were referred to as the lackeys of the gods, and they were thought to be, have been created to do the works that the, that the gods didn't want to do. So there was this real low view of human beings. And as a result, human beings struggled and wrestled against each other the way they perceived their gods did. You know, the most common forms of prayer in the ancient world were prayers of curses against their enemies. So life was not about servanthood, but a fight for dominance. And so cruel violence and elimination of the weak and infanticide, these were common practices back then. Uh, there seemed to be no sense of destiny, no ultimate authority. And the result was that life was short, it was cheap, it was brutal, without grounds for meaning or hope. 
That's how most people lived. That's how most people died. That was the world at that time. And so into this horribly destructive worldview, the writer of Genesis one, one day sits before a scroll and he writes a single sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 10 words and the world was never the same. And that book, this book, has changed the course of history in this world more than any other document or volume or letter that's ever been put together. And the greatest minds in all of human history have devoted themselves to studying the Bible. They moved to foreign countries and studied foreign cultures and languages so the Bible could be translated, so that people could read it. Men and women have sacrificed their lives. Many have gone to prison. Many are in prison right now as you and I gather to study this word. So in the time that remains today, I wanna to look at three essential items that the writer of Genesis wants us to understand about the doctrine of creation. So three observations. The first one I'll put in the form of a question, and it's this. Why did God create anything in the first place? Why is there anything? Uh, Richard Swinburne, who was a great philosopher in the 20th century, he wrote that, a great question that any worldview has to answer is, why does something exist rather than nothing? Why is there anything? In um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We just read that. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. I want to stop there for just a moment. I want to point out something. In verse 1, we see the, the work of the Father in creation, the first member of the Trinity who created all things. He's called in the New Testament, in James chapter 1, the Father of every good and perfect gift. So we see the Father in creation. Now in verse 2, who is it that is hovering over the waters? It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And the writer of Genesis uses similar language and imagery uh, later in the New Testament when it refers to the, the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon Jesus at the time of his baptism. That's the Spirit of God. And then verse 3 talks about God creating by speaking, by his word. And it's interesting in the opening words of the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then later in that same chapter, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the word? That's Jesus, God the Son. So in the very first three verses of the Old Testament, we have this first hint about the Trinity of God, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. And by the time scripture is finished, it becomes very, very clear that before time, at the very beginning, there is an eternal God that exists. Unlike the stories of the pagan myths of that day, the God of the Bible does not create because he's lonely or bored or needs help doing his work. Rather, out of the fullness of the community of the Trinity, God says, this beauty, this idea of community, this joy of fellowship is so good, let's broaden the circle. Let's create human beings, not as God, but in our own image. And let's invite humans to become part of the fellowship of the Trinity. So, why do we exist? 
Scripture says that we exist because God so delights in the goodness of community, he wants to expand it like a billion times over. That's why. A great author by the name of Dallas Willard wrote these words. He said, God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That is the best single sentence definition that I know of what God is up to in creation. That's why you and I exist. We exist in a universe not just of atoms and molecules and quarks and forces, but in a, with a trinity of loving persons. And I hope that as you and I, as we read through the Bible, I hope every time you open it up, you whisper this little prayer, God, meet me in your word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, meet me in your word. And I hope that through his word, you actually begin to experience the fellowship of the Trinity. That's the first observation. Here's the second one. God wanted his community to have a wonderful place to live. Now think about this. You and I are physical beings. God is spirit, but we have bodies. So we need a place for community to take place. And God wanted us to have that. So he creates this universe. And I want to talk more about the wonder of the universe in a moment. But first I want to point out a really, really important distinction because it was important to the writer of Genesis. And it's this. There is an infinite difference between the creator and creation. There's this infinite gap. And human beings had a problem with this in ancient days. Paul says it like this in, in the uh, book of Romans, uh, first chapter. He says, men worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. The moon and the sun were worshiped as gods. People thought the moon and the sun had, had existed forever, even before the other gods that they believed in. And they would pray to the moon and the stars and the sun, and they would sacrifice to them. But the writer of Genesis wants to make, wants to make really, really sure that people distinguish between God and God's creation. And I'll tell you one way that he explains that. It's really interesting. In, in verses 3 through 5 of Genesis 1, it's the first day, the very first day, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So on the first day, there's evening, and there's morning. Let me ask you a question. On what day is the sun created? Look at verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. You'll hear that repeated a lot. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate, again, the light from the darkness. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So when was the sun created? Fourth day. Some, sometimes people read through this and say, okay, so there's evening and morning on the first day. Sun's not created to the fourth day. What is up with that? Well, the writer is not confused, and he's not scientifically challenged. He wants to make it very, very clear that the sun and the moon are part of creation. They are not God. So he shows that they had a very real and definite beginning time. Notice that the text never even says the sun or the moon, just says the greater light and the lesser light. There's a good reason for that. 
Sun and moon were names of deities in the ancient Near East. And the writer wants everybody who reads this book of Genesis to be very, very clear that the sun and the moon are not divine. They are created by God. Their functions are assigned to them by an all-powerful eternal God who is fully capable of generating light without any help from them at all. Beyond that, Revelation 21 gives a little bit more definition. It's talking about the city of God and it says, it has no need for the light of sun or moon for the splendor of God fills it with light. God himself is the light. Genesis is saying, don't worship creation stuff rather than the creator. So, I mean, only primitive people would be so dim to worship creation, right? Well, well, in our current culture, in our quest to eliminate God, people now say things like, well, the universe will provide, the universe will show the way. Okay. So God, with an eternal and historical underpinning, written in detail that we have had for thousands of years, that seemed to be outdated, but the universe will provide is now acceptable theology? The sun, moon, stars, and planets will care for me and help me make decisions. Okay, that's just brilliant. We've come a long way, haven't we? Well, the writer wants human beings who still struggle with this stuff to get really, really clear. The purpose of creation is to help us see how good God is. I mean, look at creation, look at nature. We see sunrises and sunsets that take our breath away. There's mountain peaks and ocean waves and tropical settings that just look like paradise. To think how good God must be to make something like this. I mean, why is it that the, the earth and the creatures on it, it move us so deeply? Be, because they reflect our great God. Now, there are these phrases, I said, that repeat over and over in the beginning of Genesis. God said, let there be, and it was so. That's an expression of the power of God. Do you have that kind of power? Do you have that kind of power in any sphere of life where you can just say, let there be, and it is so? Well, the knee-jerk answer to that is no, but actually, you do have that power in one sphere, and I'll tell you where it is. It's in your body, in your own body. You can say to your hand, raise, and your hand raises, and you're not even sure how it is that you're able to do that. But God has given you a tiny little bit of the kind of power that he has he has that kind of power over the entire universe. What you can do with your body, to an even more perfect degree, God can do in the universe. He just speaks without effort, and it is so. There is no other account of a God like that. I'll give you kind of a, a fancy word. Uh, this is the, the Latin uh, referral to this. God, God creates ex nihilo, mean out of nothing, from nothing. There's just nothing there, and God speaks. And there's stuff there. Only God. Only God. Now, then this other theme that keeps recurring is, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. The goodness of creation is a reminder of the goodness of our creator. God takes endless delight in the things that he creates. Again, there's little reflections of this in us, the way we just love certain things in creation. Anybody here ever have a pet? Pet? 
Why is it that we love animals? We love our pets so, so much. It's because God created them and God loves them. And we have that reflection in us. If I am driving down the road and I see a puppy, I will actually many times have pulled over, gotten out of my car just to go hug the puppy and pet the puppy. I can't even tell you how many times I've done this. It's this kind of, some days I just need that, I guess. I'm not sure. But I think God takes this kind of delight in the things that he creates. It's an interesting thing. The Hebrews, to whom this book is actually written, they never use the word nature. They only use the word creation. They didn't even have a word for nature because they know that nature creation does not exist on its own naturally. It's the work of God. It's the creation of God. He created it. He sustains it. And when these people to whom this word was written were out in creation, they expected to see God and see God's fingerprints all over it and to meet God in it. To go for a walk was a deeply spiritual experience. So you'll notice as you read the Psalms that there were two great places of worship. One was the temple where the community gathered. You know what the other one was? Creation, out in creation. In Psalm 19, it says the heavens are telling, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. You know, Jesus most frequently, frequently went to meet his father in creation. So as we move through the Bible together, I hope that sometimes you will read it out in creation. You'll read the expression of God in written form in the creation of God in physical form, in creation. And when you're there, just breathe a word of thanksgiving. God, thank you for creating such beauty all around me. Now here's one implication under this thought. Christians ought to be the most sensible environmentalist in the world because this is not our house. It, it belongs to somebody else, it belongs to God. God made it and we ought to take really good care of it. And Christians ought to hold that value as high as anybody else. Now, one caveat, we don't worship it and we don't see humans as a blight on the planet that God actually gave to us, but we ought to care for it because it's God's. All right, third, third observation. Uh, it's real important in the doctrine of creation. Here it is. The climax of creation is the creation of human beings. It's the creation of human beings. This is a big deal. Now, there's two aspects of human beings that are brought out in the beginning of Genesis. The first is that we are very humble, finite, limited, fragile creatures. We're not God. And Genesis is real clear about this. And I'll tell you one of the ways God gives this clarity here. Everything else that God creates, he just speaks into existence. God said, let there be, and it was so. Not with humans. Not with humans. In Genesis 2-7, it says that God reaches down and forms a man out of the dust of the earth. Forms a man. And in verse 19, it says, from dust we are made, to dust we shall return. From dust we are made, to dust we eventually shall return, at least our physical bodies. Uh, one little kid come, comes home from church one day, and they had learned all about this in kids' church. We come from dust, and to dust we shall return. And every Sunday, all the kids uh, in the house had to clean their rooms. And so they're out doing that. Kid come, Johnny comes out and says, Mom, you better take a look under my bed because somebody's either coming or going. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
I'll give you another real important phrase that we'll want to remember. And again, this is the Latin phrase for it. It's called imago Dei, the image of God, the image of God. The writer of Genesis does not spell out precisely what it is which defines the presence or the, the image of God. Uh, certainly, it involves the facts that we, are, that we are moral agents and we are able to uh, think and choose for ourselves and we have the capacity for community. Um, but in Genesis 127, it says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, the capacity for community. So male and female, we are co-bearers of the image of God. Beyond that, God provides food for the people that he makes. And in verse 29, it says, God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. You notice they only get a vegetarian diet when they're in the garden. And some people are wondering, how can that be paradise if it's only vegetables? <laughs> You'll have to wrestle with that one on your own. My own theory is this, is that it was after the fall that vegetables started tasting like vegetables. <laughs> so God provides food for the people he creates, but in a way that's not destructive to the other creation at that time. And then God does another wonderful thing. He gives people work to do. God gives people work. In Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That's interesting. Why doesn't God make the garden self-weeding? Could have done that. It's a curious thing when you stop and think about it. He left creation with work still to be done, like it's unfinished. He didn't have to. Why does he do that? Because he made human beings with this inner need to contribute, to add value to this earth, to make a difference, and to work. Work is not a curse. It might be that you do work at school or as a volunteer. Whether or not you have a job with a paycheck, when you stop working, you start dying. It's my personal opinion about retirement. <laughs> God invites us to partner with him, to kind of be co-regents in this world. And like God's saying, I want you to co-rule the earth with me. But God didn't just make us to work. All along, this refrain has kept repeating, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. But now in Genesis 2.18, he says, it is not good. Well, what's not good? It is not good for the man to be alone. Adam needs a companion. He needs a community. So there's this kind of sweet story where there's kind of a parade of animals that comes up before Adam to see if any of them might be Adam's type. Uh, they're all brought before him and it says, whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Apparently Adam is an excellent namer. And naming has to do with studying these animals, these creatures and perceiving their natures. Adam is beginning to learn and grow and add value. And in verse 20, it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper could be found. Adam says about each one of the animals, that's oh, nice, but not really my type, you know? <laughs> so God creates a woman and Adam declares that she is definitely his type. And his response is sheer poetry in verse 23. There's kind of a playfulness to the text sort of a clumsy translation, but it's basically, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. 
That's something like the words man and woman in English. In fact, that's where the old line comes from, where man sees the woman that God created for him, and he says, whoa, man, that's it, woman, <laughs> that's it, that's her name. I'm a really good namer. <laughs> now, when she is called his helper, it, it, is, it does not mean that she's like his gopher or junior assistant. Uh, the idea behind Adam, uh, she being Adam's helper, is that the the fundamental task that has been given to Adam is the creation of community, and he can't do this on his own. After this, it goes on to say these words, and the two shall become one. The two shall become one. In a way, that's kind of the signature of God, because God exists as Trinity, one plus one plus one, but somehow they equal one. And God creates human beings, male and female, in his image, one plus one, but again, they become one. God's math is always easy. The answer is always one. So this begins to wrap up the first image that we, set of images that we find in, in, in the, the book of Genesis. And we see here that community, in God's perspective, is sheer joy. And the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, uh, they identified 613 commands in the Old Testament. Know what the very first one is? Be fruitful and multiply. And I think Adam went, well, okay, if I have to. <laughs> I'll take one for the team here. Well, next week, we're gonna read about the man and the woman and how they fell and how God's dream for community got shattered. But then, about how God refused to give up on his dream and he launched the plan for permanent redemption. It begins all the way back in Genesis. I want you to bow your heads and we'll pray. God, we're so grateful for the gift of your word. Thank you for shaping our minds, shaping history with your words. And Lord, we pray as we launch out into this endeavor together that we would find new life, new meaning, and new nourishment from your word. God, continually bring it to us and help us to apply it to our lives in ways that, that really make a difference, that help us to produce fruit in our own lives that glorifies you, Lord. Like you talk about in your word, fruit that would produce just great increase in our life, 30 and 60, even 100 fold, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.